Good morning. I'm Pastor Ruth, and um, I think as a Canadian, there's probably no prouder memory than 9-11, where 240 planes, too dangerous for the United States, went to Canada. And 38 of those landed in this little town in Gander. It's about the size of the town of Snohomish. Imagine how we felt on 9-11. Imagine it, welcoming 6,000 people from around the world off of airplanes on that day. Well, really, the day after. Most of them had to spend more than 24 hours on the plane before they were deplaned. But it's a remarkable story. I, I, I love to hear the story of the Good Samaritan. I think Jesus has created probably the most famous fictional character in the world, the Good Samaritan. And I wanted us to think about what that looks like in real life. It required making a lot of space. Gander made a lot of space. They literally opened their doors. They literally opened their closets and gave clothing and bedding and all that was needed. The first thing that happened when the passengers got off the plane was a banquet uh, thrown by this town. And many lifelong relationships were formed in that two to four days because of the generosity of the way they had made room not only in their homes and community, but at the tables and in their hearts for these thousands of strangers. Today we're talking about these two practices that Christians have practiced always for centuries, hospitality and solitude. The two both require us to make room. In solitude, we make room for God. And in hospitality, we make room for others. Let's pray as we go to God's word. Father, we're grateful that you, in fact, are our host, that you have welcomed us. When we were strangers, you took us in and you made a way for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you transform us in time with you so that we can be that hospitality and welcome to others. Be with us this morning, God. Would you just touch our hearts in the way that you want to, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we've been in this series. We're on practices 11 and 12, looking at spiritual disciplines, really, that have been practiced over all time, really before Christ, the people of God practiced many of these, that really nurture the health and life of our souls. They're practices, first, where we are talking about inhaling the life and power and love of God through Bible study, Sabbath, meditation, fasting, simplicity, and solitude, and then practices where we exhale the life and love and power of God through our serving and truth-telling and prayer and generosity and hospitality. Jesus' life, of course, was, com- was characterized particularly in a rhythm on these two that we're talking about today, solitude and hospitality. And there's lots of, lots of scripture that talk about Jesus' time alone and then going out to serve. In Matthew 14, there's a story where Jesus hears in verses 13 and 14 about the death of his cousin John. The king, Herod, at that time beheaded his cousin John. And when he hears this news, this is how Jesus responds. When Jesus heard it, he went away by boat to a deserted place quite alone. When Jesus emerged from his retreat, he saw a vast crowd and was very deeply moved and cured the sick among them. 
And then it goes on to talk about how he prepared a meal for 5,000. This is the rhythm of Jesus' life, described by all four of his biographers. Solitude, hospitality, withdrawal to prayer, moving out to heal and teach and serve, time alone with God, and then time making big ministry decisions like who are his followers going to be and what town should they be preaching in today. And if we follow Jesus, it seems to me this is the pattern that we are called to follow. So I'm curious in in our experience here, we tend towards one or the other. How many of you love solitude? You would be a monk in your next opportunity, maybe your next career. You can't wait to get out of here and be alone. (laughs) There's there's a few of us who love, I love solitude. Um, How many of you love hospitality? Never met a stranger, always ready with an extra place at the table, love to invite new people home. Okay, I think we got a few more in the hospitality area. I think there are natural tendencies to these, but as with all of the practices, they are all meant to nourish and help us to flourish as Christians. So we're going to look first at solitude. What is solitude, and then why is it important? It's not the same as silence. It's not just resting. It's really a kind of fast, because it's a way that we abstain. We abstain from the voices of books. We abstain from the voices of technology, of music, of other people. We get away and sort of, in a sense, make space for only the voice of God. I've defined it as accepting the hospitality of God because, of course, God is the one who first welcomes us. We have been his guests since birth. This is his cosmos. This is his world. It's his home. And even though we have been the source of violence and pain and selfishness in every form, we have and destroyed much of the beauty and joy and peace of his home, God offered us, his enemies, the path to reconciliation, and he paid for the, for the repair of his world through the death of Christ. God's hospitality is really like no one else's. In fact, like no friend that you have. God is never overscheduled. God is never distracted when he meets with you. He's never out of range. Jesus is the friend who hears your voice and says, I'll be right over. Psalm 145.8 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him. And solitude is simply us saying yes, accepting that hospitality that God is offering all the time. But a couple of reasons why we want to practice solitude that I will give you are that it's a place of revelation. Solitude makes room in our life to experience the truth about our own life and also to experience the truth about God. Isaiah 30, verse 15 says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and strength is your, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. That sounds a little bit like us. Solitude God is offering us, a place of repair, a place of transformation, a place of connection, and getting clarity and light from him for the path ahead. But sometimes, wouldn't you and I do just about anything to avoid quiet? Why is that? 
I think, I think one of the reasons, glad you asked, <laughs> one of the reasons that I avoid silence or avoid solitude is because my inner world is much too loud. <laughs> my inner world can be full of fears and insecurities. It can be full of grief I'm trying to avoid or anger that I'm pretending that I don't have. My head is not always a safe neighborhood, a safe place to go by myself. And deserted places are not safe in the Bible. Jesus himself experienced an opportunity in the desert where he had to, in a sense, face down the powers of evil. And so I would say that as we move into solitude, we always do it with Christ. We don't do it alone. God's revelation of the truth about us is the place where, where transformation can begin. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, it's gazing on the Lord that we increasingly reflect his glory. If we don't take the time to gaze on the Lord, we will not increasingly reflect his glory. Dave Benner writes about his experience of solitude in this way. If God's heart is to become mine, I must know his heart. Meditating on God's love has done more to increase my love than decades of effort to try to be more loving. I must come to love through the cross, come to love through sin and failure rather than success and self-improvement. It's only when I give up trying to be more loving that God's love can really touch me. It's only when I come to him in the midst of my failures in love that his love can transform me. For only if I have met the heart of God and love can I ever hope that his heart of love might become mine. It's in solitude we have the opportunity to set aside our failures to love and failures of all kinds. And it's in, it's in solitude that we set aside our successes and we discover that we are not our failures and we are not our successes. As Henri Nouwen puts it so beautifully, our worth is not the same as our usefulness. Our worth is not the same as our usefulness. This is the pattern of Jesus. It says in Luke 5.15 that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And I think that this is the secret, the key to how he was able to live fully man, living in the limitations of a human body and human experience. But he managed to walk this unhurried walk where he seemed to know every day what he was to do. He seemed to have clarity about what was his and what was not his to do. He was not a driven man. He was a called man. And each day, he healed some, and he taught some, and he fed some, and he rested some, and he prayed some. He was just as intentional about his time with God as he was intentional about his time with people. So in accepting solitude, accepting this hospitality of God for us, we do encounter ourselves, and it is a gift to see the truth, not only about our fallenness, but also about our belovedness. We also find out the truth or or get to see God as God is. We're not thinking about God. We're experiencing God in solitude. Remember, we've, we've chosen to tune out all the other voices, even the good voices, to hear the still small voice of God. 
Be still and know that I am God. Encountering the God who is light and love is what gives us a secure foundation for life. Many of us root our lives in relationships, and the reality is that that is not a sure foundation. In fact, it's destined to fail because there is no lasting relationship. Not our parents, not our spouse, not our children, not even a friend will always be there with us. There are times that even the dearest and closest to us will not show up to pray with us, as Jesus experienced in the most critical night of his life. But Jesus is that constant companion, so that we can say with the psalmist, we are not afraid of evil tidings, our hearts are firm, secure in the Lord, our hearts are steady, we will not be afraid. Recently, Alec Hill shared with our Alpha Circle some about his remarkable experience as he went through um, bone marrow transplant. Uh, He had a sense of God's intimate presence, he said, even though for most of a year he was in quasi-isolation and 100 days, he spent 100 days in complete isolation. He said the Lord's presence was palpable. Even in the midst of physical pain, he sensed the Lord's closeness in unique and remarkable ways. And he said he would never want to go through that physical experience again, but that he covets the time of spiritual richness. And he gave me permission to share this journal entry that speaks to his experience. And I would also say isolation is also not solitude. In isolation, we can still choose to divert ourselves with other things. Alec chose to turn his isolation into solitude. And he writes this on a day when even his wife Mary could not be there. With Mary seeing a friend, I could easily feel alone. But instead, I'm feeling the thickness of your presence. You are here. If I were to die tomorrow, this is what I would enter into. And this is but a down payment. I love you so much, Father. In solitude, we experience the thickness of the presence of God. And it's that presence that is our promise. It's not our promise that we won't suffer. It's not our promise that we won't have difficult times. It is our promise that we are never alone in our suffering. So having inhaled the hospitality of God, what does it mean for us to offer hospitality to others? And uh, first off, I'd just like to say we have to rescue the word from Pinterest. Pinterest doesn't know what hospitality is. A great place uh, to find out about hospitality, to read about it, is Shauna Nequist, who wrote a great book called Bread and Wine, A Love Letter to Life Around the Table. And this quote comes from that book. I'm not talking about cooking as performance or entertaining as a complicated choreography of competition and showing off. I'm talking about feeding someone with honesty and intimacy and love, about making your home a place where people are fiercely protected, even if just for a few hours from the crush and cruelty of the day. Hospitality is, first of all, a great gift of love. It's about a guest. Let's do 
all of us a favor, do hospitality a favor this Thanksgiving and lower the bar. Now, I'm not saying we can't do creative things. In fact, do the parts that, are, that give you life, that give you joy. Do the creative parts of Thanksgiving and let the rest go. I dare you not to take a picture. <laughs> I dare you instead to look in the eyes of your guests, to make connections with the people around your table and not about your table. The word hospitality in the New Testament is phileo xenia. And if you break those apart, phileo is brotherly love and xenia is stranger. So hospitality is literally the love of the stranger. Put that against xenophobia, which means hatred or fear of strangers, okay? The Christian call is to love of strangers, love of foreigners, love of aliens, because such were we when God offered us his hospitality. Hospitable homes are where strangers become friends. Jesus spoke of hospitality in Luke, and I was thinking as I read this this week, I was imagining who he talked to and what their homes were like, and so I researched first century homes and discovered that all of them lived in um, tiny homes, two, two rooms, maybe, maybe 200 square feet or probably less. So think about that as you listen to his words about hospitality. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Of course, in Scripture, we are also told to offer hospitality to each other, to our friends and family. But in this instance, Jesus is raising the bar, telling us the standard, in fact, is higher than that for us that we are to welcome strangers in our home, we are to feed strangers at our table, and we are to open our hearts to strangers. In my guest room for many years, I used the back of the guest room door as my, as my guest book, that people would sign it when they stayed. And so I, I, I always used to joke, well, somebody famous is going to come through here, and that door is going to be worth a lot. St- still not worth anything, but it is worth something to me. Um, one, of the, one of the guests was a young artistic woman who, who did a calligraphy at the top that says, Angels Unaware, kind of a reference to that verse in Hebrews that says we should entertain strangers because we never know. There could be an angel among them. And as I looked down that list, <coughs> the, um, the angels who have come into my life have had muddy feet, <laughs> literally and figuratively, lots of muddy feet. Welcoming strangers is a costly practical, sacrificial love. Think about the Good Samaritan story and the story of Gander. It's inconvenient. It involves interruptions and changing our plans. It's physically taxing work to change the beds and wash the sheets and prepare the meals. When I review the, the, the names, and honestly, I've, some of them I'm like, I don't even know who that was on the back of my door. Um, There are some that bring great smiles to my face and others where I sigh because I have not done this by any means perfectly. I smile as I look at the signatures of a couple of girls 
who we got to, we had over for dinner because they were coming from the Midwest, some friends we knew, and they spent the summer with us, spent three months with us, and we had a ball. And then I see another name a couple of years ago. Uh, I knew a young woman who needed a, a place to stay. She was having some health issues that were financially really difficult for her. She needed a place to stay. And I knew that my life did not have margin. And as I look back at that time, I recognize that she got a bed, but she didn't get a home with us. And I regret that. I regret the, the not having uh, the margin to give her a home. I have certainly not lived up to the instruction of 1 Peter 4.9 to offer hospitality without grumbling. There's been lots of grumbling. But hospitality happens in homes and at tables and in hearts. And I want to just focus a minute about meals, about being around a table, because it's such a powerful place to share life and community and influence. Meals were right at the center of what Jesus did. That's where he taught. That's where he built relationships. That's where his ministry and evangelism happen. In Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, Eugene Peterson challenges us to, to, that perhaps meals were in fact Jesus' primary evangelism tool. Meals were Jesus' primary evangelism tool. How would that transform what we do? And he says that we should take the meal with as much gospel seriousness as we take our scriptures. That we take the kitchen to be as essential in the work of salvation as is the sanctuary. This has really convicted my heart doing this lesson because for periods of time in my life, there's been lots of hospitality, but I have to say since I've been an empty nester and working, I have abdicated a lot of the power of the table to turn strangers into friends. And I'm really grateful that I'm part of a connect group where a meal starts our time together. There's kids, there's chaos, it's inefficient, it's messy, but it is where relationships are built. We don't come to the table to fight or to defend. We don't come to prove or to conquer, to draw lines in the sand or to stir up trouble. We come to the table because our hunger brings us there. We come with a need, with fragility, with an admission of our humanity. The table is the great equalizer, the level playing field many of us have been looking everywhere for. The table is the place where doing stops and trying stops and the masks are removed and we allow ourselves to be nourished like children. We allow someone else to meet our need. In a world that prides people on not having needs, on going longer and faster, on going without, on powering through, the table is a place of safety and rest and humanity where we are allowed to be as fragile as we feel. Let's not give up the meal. Let's not give up the table. Jesus chose a meal to explain his sacrifice. Jesus left us a table to gather around as his people and family. Recently, I was invited but unable to attend something called a peace feast, a meal I think Jesus would have loved. It was described as a chance for Christians to bless and be blessed by their Muslim neighbors through both giving and receiving hospitality. Is that not a genius idea? Gather around a meal. And I'm hoping that the person in this congregation who organized that will organize more of them. 
Hospitality of the heart, as Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians, so deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves. You know, we're, we are really a generous congregation. I've seen that in the year and a half that I've been here at North. I have never seen so many coats. You guys are awesome at bringing coats to, get, to keep people warm. We provided backpacks for kids this fall. And really, any time a call goes out for meals, you guys are practically and just have great, great hearts. But I know myself, it's much harder to share myself beyond the ministry moment, in my home, at meals, with my heart and my life. And I've also discovered that godliness for me is impossible without margin. And here's what I mean. If I am living my life at 80% of my capacity and a neighbor has a need, I can joyfully step in and love my neighbor. If I'm living at 100% capacity and my neighbor has a need, I can step in reluctantly, perhaps resentfully, and probably make my family or my health pay. If I'm at 120% capacity in my life and my neighbor has a need, I cannot love my neighbor. It's, it has nothing to do with the condition of my heart. It has everything to do with the way I have ordered my life. And I just say that as a caution to all of us um, around margin. We talk at Bethany about being local, contextual, and relational in our ministry. And as I've been at North for a year and a half, I've thought about what is the context here at North? How is it different? Well, one, one thing I've noticed is there is a community of 200 people in our immediate vicinity who will be deciding in the next 10 to 15 years whether they are going to follow Christ. We've been given an opportunity 10 to 15 years to influence 200 people who Christianity Today says 70% of them in the next 10 or 15 years will walk away from church. And that community of people when asked why they left church, did not say, I didn't get enough Bible stories, or I didn't hear enough about God. Here were the reasons they gave. Adults in their church were judgmental or hypocritical. Two, they didn't feel connected to people at their church. And three, members of their church were unfriendly or unwelcoming. Of course, I'm talking about the 224 kids we had Last week at this church, we have a window of opportunity in the lives of our children. The last church I was at, there were five adults to every child. Bethany North has 1.5 adult per child. This is our mission, people. This is our mission. God has brought 200 people to our congregation for a period of time where we can share the love of Christ, and disciple them to be followers of Christ for life. Three baby steps I'm going to give you. First, solitude. I'm going to encourage you this week to take one hour. One hour. Take a walk without your phone. Sit in a room with no technology and without books and without any distractions. Take one hour and simply be with God. And the second baby step I want you to take is I want you to talk to a child today. Before you leave church today, I want you to talk to a child. I want you to learn their name and one thing about them. And I want you to tell them, I'm glad you're here. 
this is our ministry. This is a time God has called us to at Bethany North. And I'd also encourage you, we have prayer ministers every week up there at the back. And accept their hospitality. They have hearts of hospitality to pray with you, to join with you in the, in the things that you're carrying. Go and pray with them. The rhythm of solitude and, hosp- and, hus- and hospitality are the way that we care for the soil of our souls so that we can increasingly experience and extend God's welcome, God's generosity, and God's love to others. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your hospitality. We're grateful for the way that you extended to us a stranger to you and an enemy you extended the hand of welcome. Thank you, God, for your love and grace and that we have the opportunity not only to experience it, but to share that with others. Thank you for the people here who are incredibly hospitable. And Lord, I pray especially for all of these young families with kids. Lord, hospitality to a three-year-old counts. Lord, would you encourage them this week that as they offer hospitality to the kids in their neighborhood, that is hospitality. God, help us to be your people in this this world. In Christ's name, amen.